My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, the woman with the answers will be Dr. Anne Kavukian. Dr. Kavukian is the Information and Privacy Commissioner of the Province of Ontario, as well as the foremost global champion of the privacy by design philosophy. Dr. Kavukian, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to join you. Fantastic. So I know your time is very valuable, so let's jump right in. Um, if you were to introduce yourself and what you do in a couple of sentences, in, in a couple of sentences, how would you do that? I always start by saying, uh, I'm here to protect your privacy. I'm here to protect your freedom. Because to me, privacy and freedom are inextricably linked. You can't have freedom without privacy. And so that's what I seek to do. Yeah, I've heard you say that before. Would you mind elaborating a little bit more? Why do you think there's such an intricate connection between privacy and freedom? And perhaps you could give us some specific examples. Sure. Well, if you look historically at countries that have morphed from free and democratic societies into totalitarian states, the first thread to unravel is privacy. We know this by the academics who have studied uh, the Third Reich, for example, Nazi Germany. How is it possible that this country and all of its freedoms could have been completely shut down and become a totalitarian state. And the first thread that was removed was any personal freedoms, any privacy, any ability to have a sense of autonomy from the state. The state effectively owned everything, your information, information that people would relay about their neighbors and everyone was giving all this information about everyone else. There was complete mistrust and it was just a horrific uh, time. And I know when I've been to conferences and uh, looked at the, all of the activities that my German colleagues ever engaged in, every conference they lead with a reference to the Third Reich, every conference they lead with a reference to the cessation of all of their personal freedoms and how never again, that will never happen again. That's why Germany is the strongest data protection privacy country in the world. Fantastic. So let me see how and if that connects with your own personal motivation. So perhaps we should start why, if you have a PhD in psychology, you decided to make a career of and you're so passionate, obviously, about privacy. Part of it is um, when I was in university and I doing graduate work, I was studying psychology and the law. So I was very interested in, in the legal matters and issues. And I also uh, did volunteer work with uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. So I was always interested in freedom. And the first job that I got was with our attorney general. And um, I was studying issues relating to uh, the, how the legal framework operated in society and our personal freedoms was very important to this. Long story short, I ended up working for the first privacy, information and privacy commissioner uh, in this country, in this province, and he uh, asked me to join him as uh, his first director of investigations. Privacy at that time, and I'm going back a long time, I'm talking late 80s, privacy at that time was very ill-defined. This is 
the beginning of the internet, the beginning of the web. So everything was just beginning to emerge. I, in effect, got the best education by being in the right place at the right time and being exposed to these issues. Plus, as you know, uh, freedom was, has always been very important to me. I, I happen to be Armenian. That's my background. And my parents gave up so much to raise their children in freedom. I was actually born in Cairo. Uh, but we came... Uh, to Canada when I was four years old. So I don't recall very much. I remember going to the pyramids every Sunday. But <laughs> my, my parents said that when they lived there, it was a cosmopolitan area. It was under British rule. The, the Christians, my family was Christian, lived a song alongside of the Muslims, alongside the Jews. Everybody had a wonderful free environment. And they had a, a charmed life. When Nasser came into rule, uh, mid to late 50s, all of that changed. The country was nationalized. There was no more freedom. My parents were very, very concerned that my two older brothers would be conscripted to the army one day and that their children wouldn't be raised in freedom. Being Armenian freedom is so important. And so literally in the dead of the night, they, they left very quickly uh, and they left the country with nothing other than, as my mother used to say, her three children, her two mothers, and uh, eight suitcases. And they started from nothing here in Toronto. Anyway, that really underscored the importance of freedom to me. Mm -hmm. As a Bulgarian originally myself, I can very much sympathize because the Armenian people and the Bulgarian people have very similar histories yes. during the Ottoman Empire. So I can really sympathize with your personal history. But let me ask you this then, what is your own personal motivation and what are your own personal goals in this field of privacy then? My, my personal goal is not to see privacy obliterated because of the uh, zero-sum mindset that seems to occupy most of the world, meaning uh, anytime there's some new innovation, uh, now the big thing is big data. Whatever the new thing is, they say, oh, well, now in the world of big data, I guess you can't have privacy, but we have to give up privacy in order to have big data. Or when it was online social media, Facebook, etc. Oh, everyone is connecting online, so I guess you can't have privacy anymore. That's nonsense. That's predicated on this either-or, zero-sum mentality. You can only have one or the other. And in my world, whenever there's that kind of mentality, privacy versus security, one or the other, it's always at the expense of privacy, which is completely unacceptable because you must have privacy, you must have freedom in society. And so my goal is to inform the world, basically, that yes, you can have privacy and big data. In fact, I'm working in that area. I work with Deloitte and others to show that you can have massive data analytics and big data efforts and also preserve privacy by aggregating the data, de-identifying the data, encrypting the personal data. There's so many things you can do. And we've, we've put this in many of our papers where we've partnered with all the leading companies, Microsoft, Intel, Google, HP, IBM, the leaders in the field, we partner with them to show that this is real. Privacy must be protected. You can't just say, well, you know, innovation comes, you can't stand in the way of it. Of course not. Privacy is an enabler of innovation, not the opposite. So that's my, my personal passion is to inform the world that you can have privacy and these other functionalities. I, I must admit, sometimes I feel like, you know, David versus Goliath because more and more people keep thinking, well, I guess we have to give up privacy because of this new innovation. No, that's nonsense. You can have both. 
Um, you touched on so many themes that I will bring a little bit later in our interview here. But before that, let me just ask you, what are the main responsibilities of the Privacy Commissioner's Office? So we do a number of things. We oversee compliance with uh, information and privacy laws in the um, province of Ontario. And one of my mandates is also to educate the public. In terms of policy-related issues, we educate the public on anything relating to privacy and access to information. And these days, there is so much. So we do a lot of work in the, uh, we do a lot of policy papers, white papers. We partner with leaders in the field all over the world. And the main goal, in my view, is to ensure that privacy not only is strengthened, but lives on well into the future. And that we don't only do, for example, in terms of the regulatory work that we do a lot of, we have thousands of files, we have appeals, we have privacy investigations, I have order-making power, which means I can order government departments, institutions to stop doing what they're doing if it um, is not in compliance with the Act. I can order the cessation of all information collected if it was collected in a way that was in breach of the Act. So I have very strong powers. But I rarely use those. I, that, I, that's the stick. I have the stick. I don't want to use the stick. I prefer the carrot. I've always preferred the approach of working with government departments, working with interested community groups to find a way to mediate solutions. I think informal resolution of cases we have before us are far more effective. And so we do a great deal of that. I also do a lot of public speaking. I think probably that's my, the most important thing I can do because then I can reach thousands of people at a given time as opposed to settling cases on a one-off basis. You have to do both. But I think in this day and age, you can't rely on simply offering systems of redress once a privacy harm has arisen. What I want to do is I want to be preventative. I want to prevent the privacy harms from arising. That's, that's my raison d'etre. Fantastic. And the way or the solution that you're proposing is what you call privacy by design. Now, for those of us who may not be familiar with the concept, would you mind explaining it to us? Of course. Privacy by design. I developed it back in the 90s, but it really took off after 9-11 when it was crystal clear in my mind that if we were going to have this zero-sum mindset, privacy versus security or privacy versus public safety, there would be no privacy because, of course, we have to have security and public safety. But what we need to do is change the paradigm, and I call it positive sum instead of zero sum. The term doesn't matter. But what it means is I wanted to educate the world that you can have privacy and other functionalities, not privacy versus another functionality. So in the context of of security, I want to show people, and we do in our papers and our reports, that you can have privacy and biometrics, privacy and video surveillance cameras. This can go on and on because you have to show those who are operating the systems and the public at large, that multiple functionalities can exist at the same time. The privacy by design aspect was all about embedding privacy by design, meaning with forethought, into programs. Uh, it can be software that you're designing, information technologies, communication technologies, operational processes, programs you're running, the government is running, doesn't matter what it is. If you embed it at the outset into a new program you're starting or a new technology, then it becomes part 
of the data architecture. It becomes part of the program. It's not going to be an afterthought that you try to bolt on a solution after the fact, which is rarely as effective and usually far more costly. I want to prevent the privacy harm from arising to begin with because there is no way in this world of online social media, ubiquitous computing, biometrics, uh, security measures everywhere, massive surveillance effort, everyone connecting through mobile devices and Wi-Fi positioning systems. There's no way I, I, as a regulator, am going to be able to regulate all of the harms that arise. If I see the tip of the iceberg, I'll be lucky. So there's this massive amount of privacy infractions that I'm never going to be able to attend to. They're not even going to rise to the top to come to my attention. So what happens to those? I want to prevent those from happening because it's only if we have a preventative, proactive model that we'll be able to address the majority of the harms. So it would be like saying, in, in terms of medicine, don't worry about cancer. We're just going to let the cancers develop, and then when it comes to our attention, we'll offer some chemotherapy as, as a system of redress. I mean, who would think such a thing? No one would think that. You think it's ridiculous. We want to prevent the, the cancer from arising. Of course. We have to prevent the privacy harm from arising as well. So it's very much a proactive, preventative model where you're trying to embed the privacy protections into your programs and operations by default. And that's the hardest thing to do because by default means it's automatically in the system. People can be assured of privacy. You don't have to ask for it. I mean, imagine in this day and age, you've got mobile devices, everyone doing these apps and things. And who's going to look for a privacy policy, let alone read it or figure out how to opt out? You're not going to do it. Whatever the default setting is, that is going to be the condition that rules. I want that to be privacy. Yeah, I have to say that I very much love the proactive nature of that kind of attitude. And I also very much love the fact that by default, privacy sh should be turned on rather than opt-in. And that makes all the difference in the world. I entirely agree with you. So what are the seven founding principles of incorporating privacy by design? They're really quite simple. Um, people often tell me, the privacy by design is so complicated. It's not. It's very quickly. Uh, privacy has to be uh, proactive and uh, preventative as opposed to remedial after the fact. Privacy has to be embedded as the default setting into whatever your operations are. The notion of embedding privacy by design is essential. It just means it has to be part of the, the DNA of your programs or your operations. Uh, the positive sum nature of privacy by design is essential. And that's uh, the fourth or fifth principle. And it's, it may surprise people I use that language. I always say, forgive me, when I was a graduate student, game theory was really big. And everybody else loved the zero sum aspect of game theory. I gravitated towards positive sum. Because if you could have multiple solutions, why wouldn't you rather have that instead of an either or model? But what has given me so much value is the, the positive sum mindset. Uh, an example, many years ago, I was asked to join the, um, the advisory board of the uh, European Biometrics Forum. And I was surprised they would come to me instead of the hundreds of wonderful commissioners they have in Europe. And I said, why are you coming to me to, to join your board? You've got amazing talent right there. And they said, it's simple. They said, you don't say no to biometrics. You say yes to biometrics. And I hear are the protections I insist you include to, to have the strongest privacy possible. And so I tell people when you adopt a positive sum view, 
you will have a seat at the table. You will have a voice that will be heard. You may not win all the, all, all the battles out there, but at least you will be heard and you'll be able to have input. So that's critical. Now, another principle, very important, security. Privacy subsumes a much broader set of protections than security alone. But if you don't have strong security, you cannot have strong privacy. So I talk about strong security, full life cycle protection, end to end. And we also, I, the last principle, which I could have been the first principle, is all about keeping it user-centric. Respect for the individual's privacy is essential. If you focus on the user, if you have very strong user interfaces that are visible to the user, they know what you're doing, you're respecting their privacy, involving them, should you want to use their information for another secondary purpose, you explain to them the value to be derived and obtain their consent. So user-centric is absolutely essential. Um... Let me ask you this, though. The flip side of the coin of privacy by design is surveillance by design. <laughs> and, and, and it's bad in that sense. Surveillance by design is a negative. Uh, and that's, of course, embedding backdoor, easy, and warrantless access for spying at the source of gathering of that data or information, whatever it may be. So I'd like to invite you um, to comment on that with the following quote that I took from George Orwell's book, 1984. And the quote is like this. Always eyes watching you, asleep or awake, indoors or out of doors, in the bath or bed, no escape. Nothing was your own except a few cubic centimeters in your skull. How far are we from that reality? Who would want to live in a world like that? My hope is that we are still a ways far away from that society. And uh, if I have anything to do with it, uh, that will not become an, a reality. But we have to work together right now to prevent that from to becoming a reality. We've all heard about um, Mr. Snow, Snowden's revelations of the NSA and the PRISM efforts, and all, I could, we could go on and on. There is so much surveillance that is taking place by design behind the scenes that no one has any awareness of. And this is the troublesome part. It's not that the police and law enforcement shouldn't have the ability to track people who may be potential terrorists or the bad guys. Of course, we all want that. We all want security, public safety. But there has to be some transparency associated with these programs. And they have to be done under judicial authorization. Proper court orders, you need warrants to do things. If you, as a law enforcement officer, have reasonable and probable grounds to believe that someone is um, planning something, or you have to, by all means, go. You can get a warrant for that. It's what you can't do is do this without anyone in the public having any clue that this is happening or the kind of oversight that you must have for such programs, it's not happening. And it's not just me saying this. You have senators in the United States who have been a part of the Intelligence Senate Committee. They, two of them, have come public, gone public and said, we, we need more transparency, uh, that the claims that are being made as to the successes of these operations are greatly exaggerated. What is the public to think? We know nothing. So I think what you will see is some stronger oversight arising. So surveillance by design in a negative aspect is that systems are being configured by design to survey the population, everyone in the population, not just those who are breaking law or maybe potentially, but law-abiding citizens, the entire population. It's a fishing expedition. And that's what we have to object to. 
Now, I have some good news because I, I use that term in a negative sense. We're working on something called privacy protective surveillance by design, PPS. And that is, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could design systems where you had, for example, we, we call them uh, feature detectors. These are software agents, virtual agents you, you send into a database with the features that you want these virtual agents to find. So um, what is it, fertilizer, if someone buys a lot of fertilizer and they're not a farmer, you know, things like that. There are certain things. So you, you code the, the virtual agents with these features that they're seeking. And they go and they scour databases and they go through everything online, but they're blind to everything that is not in the features that they've been programmed to search for. The beauty of that is they could go through lots of very sensitive personal information, but because they're blind to everything else, they don't see it. And they would hopefully only access the information relating to the features that are needed for purposes of surveillance for which warrants have been obtained. That's the kind of world I'm hoping we can develop, working with law enforcement. I work with our police chief here all the time. He's lovely. He actually uses the term positive sum when he's speaking to his police force in Toronto. And so it is possible. Uh, that's, that's my dream, is to develop systems that will work in a privacy-respectful manner and still attain the objectives, in this case surveillance, that are much needed in society. What do you say to people, uh, defenders of the national, uh, of the NSA prison programs and other programs like that, who say, well, the data that we're gathering is only the metadata. It's really uh. nothing of the content. <sighs> It's only the, quote, metadata, so it's really not so important, it's not a big deal, and it shouldn't make people worry about their privacy. I, I would refer them to uh, a paper that I re recently released uh, called A Primer on Metadata, Separating Fact from Fiction. And because that is exactly what you're being given, is fiction. That, oh, don't worry, it's only metadata. We don't actually listen to your conversations. Well the conversations are probably quite boring. Metadata is much more interesting and, in fact, can be far more revealing. So metadata just means information about information. So imagine all of the connections that are out there, all of the digital trails that can be connected by connecting your calls with various individuals, who those individuals are, that calls have been placed, at what times of the day, at what websites you visit, what chat rooms you participate in, where you travel. I mean, there is so much. The digital trail we leave behind us is enormous. That's the metadata that will reveal the most intricate, intricate trail uh, and reveal very detailed personal details of our lives. So you better believe metadata is something you should worry about far more than actual listening into a conversation, which in itself may not be that revealing. I want it. I'm sure that people working uh, for the NSA and for the government believe that they, they are doing the right thing, that they're doing this for purposes of protecting the public. I don't, I don't question the motives. What I question is the value of what they're doing. When you are doing such a broad fishing expedition, the amount of data that you collect is staggering. So, you know, people think of that, how do you find the needle in the haystack? Well, I know we have lots of algorithms and programs to assist, but what they don't say is that because you're fishing so broadly, you're going to have a lot of information that out of context will look menacing. 
But in the proper context, it means nothing. You're going to have a lot of information that is going to be pursued that will lead to what we call false positives. It's not a hit in terms of this is a, a terrorist in the making. It's a false positive. But you have to investigate because you don't know if it's a false positive. The lives of those people that you're investigating, oh my God, will be obliterated until you set the record straight in terms of their ability to travel, to shop. I mean, this has very serious consequences. So I urge government and the public, we need a dialogue on this. We need to have some transparency and better understanding. Now, President Obama has turned out to be the biggest implementer of surveillance by design so far, as well as the toughest prosecutor of whistleblowers uh, such as Bradley Manning, Edward Snowden, even non-U.S. citizens such as Julian Assange. Let me ask you, what's your take on these people? Uh, some have called them whistleblowers. Others have called them traitors who committed treason and aided the enemy. Others have called them heroes, journalists, privacy champions. What's your take on those people? I, th I think we owe a debt of gratitude to these people because what they are revealing to the public, which has thus far remained unknown, is an enormous amount of activity that may in fact violate the Constitution of the United States. So, of course, one has, uh, one should have loyalty to one's government and things of that nature. But if you, if you think the government is engaged in activities that, in fact, fly in the face of the Constitution in terms of upholding freedoms, these individuals feel that what they're doing is not being disloyal to their country, but upholding the Constitution that they, in fact, hold very dear. And they value freedom enormously. I think they're paying a huge price uh, and informing the public of very valuable information. Yeah, that kind of reminds me to a quote or a paraphrase by Mark Twain who said something like, a true patriot is one who always stands by his country but not always by his government. Well put, well put. It's, it's true, I mean, think of governments that that have morphed into, and I'm not suggesting this is happening in the United States, but someone said that the, the spore of totalitarianism is this kind of massive surveillance activities on, its, on the citizens of one's country. So if we are to put it broadly, it would seem to me that the biggest enemies of privacy come from two quarters. Number one would be the place where we have the people with the biggest resources. That would be governments such as the US, Canadian, United Kingdom, Australian, and other governments. But also the biggest corporations such as Google, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, even corporations such as uh, Sony, for example. So, and you've already mentioned that sometimes you feel like David versus Goliath. I mean, you have very modest resources, to say the least. How do you feel about coming up against governments who not only give your mandate and your resources, but can also be the biggest proponents of that anti-privacy legislation that you uh, oppose? And was... be it openly, be it secretively. Governments uh, want to uh, operate and, and be reelected. Uh, they need to have the support of the, the public, the citizens that they govern. Uh, 
So I always make an effort to work with government. Uh, that may sound uh, may sound like I don't do that. I, I do do that. I go to great lengths to do that. Um, the, the benefit of of my position is that I'm, I'm considered an officer of the legislature. So it means that I'm not appointed by the government of the day. I'm an independent oversight uh, individual officer because by reporting to all of the political parties, they are the ones who will either reappoint me or not. Um, and I've had the pleasure of this is my third term and my last term. I've, I've told them I've had enough. <laughs> but I've, I've had the pleasure of being reappointed three times. And I think the reason is I try to work with government. I want to show them that they can protect their citizens' privacy and function as, as they must. I think the, the, the best way, as I said, the carrot is much more appealing than the stick. Uh, occasionally, I have to issue very damning reports, which I do. But my preference is to work with them and show them the benefit of privacy, not just to the way they govern, but to the citizens who will gladly reelect them if they're doing their job properly. So, and to businesses, um, and, and I work with businesses all the time, and, and I've, I've gone down to Google and California, I've spoken there to Facebook, to, to Intel, I mean, I've spoken to so many, IBM's fabulous company. I don't, I don't just say these are uh, companies that aren't respectful of privacy. Most of those companies uh, are very respectful of privacy. Even, you know, people always want to make Google the bad guy. They're not. Google has many privacy respectful policies, and they're an amazing company. Yes, they do things that um, they regret, like the, you know, the thing with Google Buzz. They, they regretted that immensely. And the problem there, and this is the problem with many companies. When I, when I was down there meeting with them, I, I met with the head of Google Buzz and I said, you know, what were you thinking? And I'm not kidding. You know, tears well up in his eyes. And he said, we didn't know. And the reason they didn't know, like many companies at that point, they're working in silos. So the engineers are instructed you know, get this uh, program going and make it connect wildly with everything we have. So they, they connected with everything. What they don't realize, if they talked to one privacy person, they would have told them, you don't connect this program with this other program that is intended for a completely different purpose. So the personal information in that program, my contacts, for example, my individuals that I like to connect with, I haven't given you my permission to use that information for this program. I mean, it's like really basics. It's privacy 101. But if you don't know that and you're an engineer, um, why would you know that? So the whole point is getting rid of the silos. I called last year the year of the engineer. I went around the world talking almost exclusively to engineers precisely to get their input and to get this messaging out. And to a person, they said, yeah, of course we can embed privacy into design, but uh the people giving us the instructions to do the programs, they've got to tell us at the outset, right from the beginning. If they tell us from the beginning, then of course we can do this. But usually what happens is they don't tell them until right after the program's done and being run, and then they've got to retrofit a solution doesn't work as well. For businesses, when I meet with them, they're you know amazing when they think there's a benefit to them. I wrote a book a few years ago called The Privacy Payoff, and it was all about that there is a payoff to be gained by embedding privacy into whatever you're offering your customers. There's a competitive advantage that you will gain that is sustainable over time, and your clients, your customers will thank you with their business. You will attract new business. I just always try to point out the positive associated with privacy, and this is what no one has seems to have heard of before. But what about in the cases when you have the opposite kind of incentives? So 
That's only one of the times that Google has gotten in trouble. I can think of many other examples. Let me just give you two off the top of my head. Uh, the first one is the fact that Google routinely reads Gmail accounts to place relevant ads. Now, this is, in my view, a perfect example where the incentives for this surveillance by design are very much in favor of them trying to sell or place ads under your eyes. Another example of a huge scandal with a Google product was when we had the Wi-Fi uh, scandal, when Google cars were without permission and without announcing it, gathering private da data on people's uh, Wi-Fi networks. Oh, absolutely. And I, I don't want to sound like I'm here to defend Google. I'm not. But the Wi-Fi, absolutely, that shouldn't have happened. And when the story came out, it wasn't by design. I'm not saying it was right. It was wrong. But again, it was this engineer sitting doing the thing, and it didn't occur to him, I shouldn't be picking up all this other information. If they have privacy people working next to these engineers right at the time the programs are being developed, you'll eliminate 99% of those. And so the you know, the first example you gave, I understand that businesses have to operate as a business and they have business models and they have to, you know, obtain funding, etc. The only thing I'll say in, in, I don't want to say, it's going to sound like I'm saying this in Google's defense, the searching that they do, um, as they have said, there are algorithms that scour their databases and find the information and, you know, send the ads. But the algorithms, I mean, no human eyes are, are seeing this information, uh, which doesn't mean that it should continue. But at least it's not like, you know, the NSA is in there and looking and figuring out what's going on. The algorithms scour the database and they send ads, target ads to, you know, who they think might be interested. Isn't that what NASA's PRISM pretty much does, though? But the difference is NASA's PRISM absolutely has real eyes that look at, look at it. They get the initial... Um, offerings, if you will, which will contain many, many false positives. And then real live bodies are scouring this. And then to investigate this information, which will lead to false positives and inaccuracies much of the time, those are real live people who are doing the investigating. And that's where the problems arise. So I'm not trying to defend Google and, and dump on, on the NASA thing, the NSA, but there are, there are differences. And I just wanted to point that out. Mm -hmm. um, I would recommend, there's a fantastic uh, story written by Cory Doctorow called Scroogled, and it's the day Google went evil. <sighs> and it's fantastic in the sense of describing a future where the best of intentions can lead to exactly George Orwell's 1984. And I, I like that. I like Corey very much. Uh, we have a, a term. I always tell people, beware of unintended consequences. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Our time is advancing here, so let me yes. move on to the other issue of uh, related to business, and that's digital rights management. The most notorious case of which was when Sony started implementing uh, malware or spy spyware on their uh, CDs so that if you try to rip them off, they go onto your computer without the computer immune system being able to detect it, etc., etc. So let me ask you, what's your attitude towards uh, the battle between digital right management software and companies that are trying to install backdoors to monitor the legality of ownership of your software and the so-called uh, anti-piracy 
uh, wars. I, I'm just appalled by it. And the reason it's backdoor is because if any of their customers knew they were doing this, they wouldn't buy these products and services. So get with it, uh, Sony and others who, who do this. To See, that's the complete absence of transparency. And that's what drives me crazy with these backdoor operations. And people might say, well, they're not supposed to use this in this way or that way. Fine. Figure out some other way to do that. You don't plant these backdoor things. In my computer, when I'm buying something from you, you can bet that's the last time I'm going to buy anything from you. And I think they're going to get wise to this very soon. And uh, what do you think of open source software alternatives such as Linux, which perhaps are the very best example of privacy by design? Well, I think Linux is great. I, I love open source uh, software. Uh, we certainly favor that. Uh, you, but, but I think it's possible to also have open source ha software and still have privacy considerations. So I would say do open source and embed privacy by design. Let's do both. Absolutely. And in another context of the so-called the internet of everything, uh, which Cisco predicts in just about six or seven years, we would probably have something like 50 billion devices connected to each other or the Internet of Things. How do you think that kind of incredible interconnectivity of everything to everything else would impact on privacy? And how can we fit privacy by design in such a world? See, I'm the eternal optimist, and I've been working with the creators of uh, radio frequency identifiers, RFIDs, which predated the Internet of Things and connectivity. It, when we worked with the RFID people, we embedded privacy into RFIDs so that everything that is coded and is going to connect, it's all connected, but in a way where privacy is preserved. So you can have connection, which suits favors you, the individual. You want to be connected, assuming that you do. Uh, and it will serve your purposes, but it won't be used against you. It won't be used by others in uh, you know, unauthorized third parties to gain some kind of access to your information or to your life or to without your consent, without your positive wishes. That's why when you embed privacy by design into these systems, and that, that's why it's absolutely essential to do so by default, because like you said, everything's going to be connected. You're not even going to know where to go to say, well, I want to opt out of that program. And that's connected with 50 others. So this has to become an integral part of the software solution involving the connection. And then you can have a wonderful world. You can have connectedness. You can have the privacy that you want. There just has to be this dialogue and the understanding on the part of engineers that this can be done. In fact, we're... I'm co-chairing a technical committee of OASIS, an international standards body. Um, it's called the Privacy by Design for Software Engineers Technical Committee, precisely to show engineers, uh, here's the playbook on, on how you do this privacy by design, embedding it into everything. Dr. Kavukian, in a world where governments are pushing for secret surveillance by default program, in a world where we are not the consumers of companies such as Facebook and Google, but we are the product. In a world where we would have the internet of everything, what can people like me and our audience do to fight for and protect their own privacy? You can do two things. One, don't share your information with, in a way that you don't know who the audience is, like, at all. I, t I tell this to kids a lot. I go into schools. I talk to kids. Uh, everyone's connecting. You've heard about the, all the cyberbullying that's taking place. And so 
I just caution them on what information to release and what to be skeptical in terms of uh, connecting the public unknown individuals to where you are in the real world. So connecting online with offline, I, I urge people to be very careful. Review your privacy settings on whatever programs you use. Just, you gotta be responsible. Yeah, I'm not exclusively. I mean, I, I say this to companies and governments, but individuals also have to play a role. So we have to be um, conscious, not just you know floating around, not knowing what's going on. The other thing is, I think it is eminently doable once we speak up. I tell people, speak up. Tell the companies you're working with. Tell your governments you want your privacy respected. Yes, well, you want other functionalities as well, but you want your privacy perspective. It's none of their business what you do within your home, what you do in certain contexts. You're a law-abiding citizen. I want my privacy protected. And if we do those two measures, you get the public presence, you get the individual protection. We can do this. I know we can do this. We have to do this. It's all about freedom. Look at what people are willing to give up in the pursuit of freedom. Look at the Arab Spring. People are willing to give up their lives in the pursuit of freedom. We have freedom right now. Let's make sure we can preserve it well into the future. Where can people find more about you and your work? So go to our website, Privacy by Design, all one word, privacybydesign.ca. That's for Canada. We're in Canada. Um, but we operate globally in terms of our reach because I always say privacy knows no borders. It it exceeds jurisdiction. We have to protect privacy globally or we protect it nowhere. Dr. Kavukian, is there a final message that you would like our people, our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? I want them to have hope. The last thing I want is for people to think that we're not going to have privacy or freedom in the future. As human beings, we must. I mean, I'm a psychologist, actually a social psychologist. I know that the strongest sentiment is for people to connect. We're social animals. But there's an equally strong desire for personal autonomy and reflection and solitude and intimacy. You have to have both. That's what it means to be human. And we have to have freedom in order to do that. So I don't want them to give up hope. I want them to challenge. Every time they, they read a headline, uh, every day it seems, they're predicting the death of privacy or there can't be any more privacy because of some new innovation. Don't believe it. Challenge that view. Uphold privacy and know that you can have it. Know that we must have it. We must have privacy and freedom. That's what it means to be human. I think that's a fantastic message to end our interview on. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure.